Our text for today comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. But if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, it's good to see everybody here today at church. Uh, Yes, it's good. It's always good to be together. Uh, And today is uh, the final Sunday of the month of June, which means that we are fully in summer, uh, but it also means that we'll be receiving communion today. So at the end of service, we're going to take those little cups uh, that you have there and we'll receive communion together. If you're following along with us at home, obviously I'm telling you this so that you can have a little time to grab some communion elements so you can receive with us as well. So, as I said, welcome to church. We are in the second week of our summer series on the book of Revelation, and today we'll be talking specifically about chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Now, these two chapters in this section of Revelation are probably the two most straightforward chapters in this book. Uh, Chapter, uh, uh, there's not as much dense imagery, there's not as much kind of confusing language in these two, in these two chapters as the rest of the book, but it is also, it is still important for us to kind of orient ourselves well. So I wanted to give you some context of what, what is actually happening here because I wasn't going to subject you to reading two full chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, in one standing. So that's, so uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Revelation with us so you can kind of look around because I will be referencing in and we'll be, uh, we'll be reading some scripture together. Uh, But uh, for context, what is happening in these two chapters is that at the behest of the resurrected Christ, John uh, is writing to the book of Revelation as a whole, but he's specifically writing seven individual letters to seven churches throughout Asia Minor, or what we would call Turkey. I believe we have a slide up of where these churches were actually located. There you go, uh, in what is modern-day Turkey. So, uh, so that you have a sense that these are real places, they're real cities. Uh, so within the, this kind of larger cyclical prophetic letter we call Revelation uh, that is being distributed to all of these churches individually, John is writing individual letters addressing each of these individual churches. Uh, And so your average Bible reader can read these letters in this section and come away with a general understanding of what is actually happening, what John, uh, what Christ through John is attempting to communicate to the churches. This section, as I said, is kind of tame Uh, in comparison to the rest of the book. But just because it's more readable does not mean that we kind of have to turn off the parts of our brains that we were trying to activate last week when we were, when we were getting our bearings or setting kind of our compass in the book of Revelation. 
And so just by review, I want to talk about what we talked about last week very quickly so that we can orient ourselves well in this book we call Revelation. We'll be visiting these ideas multiple times almost every week because it's really important uh, that we get our bearings before we jump into the book of Revelation. So last week we asked three questions and we answered those questions. And I believe this is up on the screen as well. Here are the three questions we asked. First, we asked, what is Revelation? And our answer to that was that it's an apocalyptic letter written for the purpose of revealing Christ. Second, we, a- we asked the question, who is Revelation written to? And we said it is written to first century Christian churches in Asia Minor for, Asia Minor for the purpose of encouragement. And thirdly, we said, how should it be read? And we said, we must keep the image of the slain lamb at the center of our reading of this book. And so, even though this section that we're talking about today, chapters 2 and 3, is more straightforward, we still have to keep this context of the book in mind and these helpful uh, answers to these three questions. We still have to remember that these letters to the churches in Asia are uh, written in an apocalyptic letter, which means that we have to understand when we read this book that it is in the genre of apocalyptic, which means when we come across things like numbers, even in these letters to the churches, they are, they are the, very often those numbers are representative of a truth and not necessarily to be taken literally. And so an example of this, just a quick example, in the letter that is written to the church at Smyrna, uh, when they are told that they are going to suffer persecution for 10 days, our minds go, okay, it's going to be exactly 10 days. But remember, again, this is apocalyptic literature, and 10 days here is a symbolic number. It probably represents just the fact that they are going to suffer persecution for a short period of time, right? That number is representative. And even though, and so these are just helpful things to keep in mind as we read uh, this book. Now, even though this section is more readily understandable, as I said, as other sections, we can't forget, again, that this is apocalyptic literature. And in apocalyptic literature, we are very often shown things more than we are told things. Does this make sense? So so pictures are described to us of what is occurring, and we are shown the reality rather than being told the reality. And at the center of this, these two chapters is, I believe, a powerful image, something that we're shown, we're actually first introduced to it in chapter one, that teaches us about the core of what is happening in these two chapters of this book. Now, we didn't, like I said, we didn't read the first, uh, the full two chapters because I am merciful, but uh, we're introduced to an image in the, in the, in the first part, the, the part of chap- the first few verses of chapter two that we read today, we're introduced to an image again, or reintroduced to an image that we hear just a few verses before. So here is the first verse of chapter two of Revelation, and it says this: "To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, th- write these, uh, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks amongst the seven lampstands. Now, hold that in your mind for a second, because I'm going to go on a brief little excursus here. So, one thing that often puzzles people when they read this, these letters to the churches, is the first phrase that you read at the beginning of all seven of them, to the angel of the church of fill in the blank. Now, uh, this has puzzled Christians for a very long time, 
And some Christians have even tried to build whole theologies around this idea that, like, individual churches have individual angels that's assigned to them. Um, like, every church has an angelic being that's just assigned to that particular church, and it's their responsibility to watch over it or something of that matter. And while I'm someone who reads the Bible pretty literally, and so uh, I do believe in the reality of angelic beings in the world, and I also, just sidebar, wholeheartedly affirm the reality of a literal Satan. Uh, in part, I affirm the reality of a literal Satan because if you don't believe in the enemy of your souls, if we don't believe in a literal Satan, it becomes far too easy for us to make enemies out of those people which we disagree with, Right? Um, but the scriptures tell us we wage our war not against flesh and blood. But if you don't believe in a literal Satan, it becomes very easy to demonize other people. But here's the thing about Revelation. If you read something in this book that feels a little strange to you, like the fact that these letters are addressed to the angel of these seven churches, it's, if, if you see something strange there, it's important that we not make these kind of obscure and kind of unclear little details about the book a rule for ourselves, right? That we don't build whole structures of theology around these things. Sometimes, here's the thing, sometimes we just have to let strange things in the Bible be strange, right? Sometimes we just have to let the stuff that feels a little strange to us, we just let it, you got to let weird stuff be weird, all right? Not that the Bible's weird, it makes total sense. And here, here's the reason why. Because if you knew everything about the Bible, right? If you had an answer to every question, you would be God functionally, right? And none of us want that, right? None of us want to be God, and if you look at your neighbor, you definitely don't want them to be God, right? Unless you're married to them, and then they are. Uh, that's not true either. Jo joke's going over real great this morning, guys. Uh, so, uh, there's a lot of range of possibilities here for what uh, Christ through John might be, uh, by, might be communicating with this term angel. The word in Greek there is angelos, which uh, it means is interpreted very often in your Bible angel, but is often uh, can be interpreted messenger. So, it's possible that angel is just in this genre of apocalyptic literature is a way of referring to a messenger or a pastor of one of these churches. That's possible. But the, the, the translators of our Bibles intentionally put angel there because uh, it's unclear, right? It's unclear. And so we want to be able to maintain the fact that there might be something there that's going on that we don't totally understand, but we also don't feel the need to try to build whole systems of thought around it, right? Um, and because th that's not necessary too, because with obscure bits of the Bible that we don't always understand, we don't have to build whole systems of thought, theology, and belief around. We just have to say, hey, I don't understand everything. And that, uh, and that humble approach to the Bible can be very, very healthy. All right? All right. So that was totally for free. You don't even need to, uh, you don't even need to remember that if you, if you don't want to. Now, uh, let's hop back into that image, that picture that we're introduced to in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Jesus um, walking amongst seven golden lampstands. And we're going we're gonna to spend the majority of our time in that image this morning because I think it really explains to us what is going on in, in the writing of these seven mini letters to the churches. Now, 
you'll remember that this same image of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands is first introduced to us just a few verses up from uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 at the end of chapter 1. And this is what we read at the end of chapter 1. It's in verse 20. It says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so it is clear from this passage, and, uh, and this repeated image makes it really clear, that there is something in this picture that we're being shown of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands that's central to how we understand these letters to the churches. What, what, what flows out uh, to the churches in the form of these letters, of these both encouragement and challenges, is, is intricately connected to this image. And so if we don't understand this image of what exactly is going on of Jesus walking amongst golden lampstands, we'll, we, we'll kind of miss some of the undergirding of the, of the letters themselves and why they're being written. Now, uh, there is this concept, there is this idea in the New Testament that's brought up over and over and over again. You read it, and it feels strange, but uh, in the New Testament, there is this close connection that is always being drawn between Jesus and his church, or and the church. We see this uh, beginning even in Jesus's ministry, right? Before Jesus is, before his ascension into heaven, Jesus says to his disciples, and I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. Familiar with this? When Jesus says this to his disciples? And then there's another interesting thing that occurs when Jesus closely associates himself with the church. When, uh, when Saul, who would later be the Apostle Paul, is knocked off his donkey, or knocked to the ground. We don't know if he was riding a donkey or not. I always say that he was riding something, but we're not sure if he was. Um, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting the church, right? He was imprisoning Christians and overseeing the execution of Christians and all of these types of things. But Jesus says, no, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In some sense, closely tying his self to the church. And in Revelation, again, in this image of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands, we get this picture of a Jesus who is intimately close to the church, right? Connected to the church. In this vision uh, that is repeated multiple times in the book of Revelation, in only just a couple of verses, Jesus is speaking to the churches, but he is also walking amongst the lampstands, which, uh, which we are told these lampstands are the churches, right? It is this picture of Jesus' special presence with the churches. And notice, even the most backslidden churches, the church like Laodicea that he has the most harsh words for, Jesus is still described via this image as being specially present with them. You see, here's a takeaway for us. Jesus is not remote. He's not removed from these churches, right? He is with them. Jesus is with them. And Jesus is with us. Jesus is with us because we are a church, right? Right now, actually. Right in this very moment, Jesus is with us. He is walking amongst the lampstands. He is with his church. He is working and he is acting and he is speaking. You know, one of the really cool, the fascinating ways of looking at this image, uh, this picture of Jesus walking 
in and amongst the lampstands is the idea that Jesus is actually tending to the lampstands. He's actually tending to the light of the lampstands. You know, at this time, the way that you got light was that you had a lamp and you filled it with oil, right? And that oil lit on fire and that oil was what produced the light. And and in order to make sure that a lamp maintained its light, that lamp had to be monitored and it had to be periodically filled with oil. And Jesus in this image may just be walking amongst the lampstands, tending to the churches, filling them with oil in order that, to help them maintain their light so, so that they can be a kind of light to the world, right? You see, Jesus is the light of the world. Yes, we know that. But it is the church empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is the carrier of that light. And I'm going to say something that might be a stretch. It might be controversial. I know this. But I believe that the message of Jesus in the world is only as healthy as the churches that carry that message. So often we see the way that an unhealthy church hinders the light of Christ, don't we? I'm sure many of you have been a part uh, or around or have seen churches that have in their brokenness have hindered the message or the light of Jesus. Moral failure, financial impropriety, toxic churches full of judgmental and angry people, churches that are more comfortable with where they've been than where Jesus is leading them, churches that lack love, lack fellowship, lack joy, lack peace. When, uh, when churches operate like this, we actually mar the image of Christ in the world. But Jesus, in this picture, in this image, is committed to the health of the church. He's committed to it. He is tending to the health of the church, both the church universal and, I think, by extension, Grace Community Church. Because he is committed to seeing us become his light of this gospel, this good news in our community. You know, my father-in-law has this phrase that he likes to say. He likes to say that every community deserves a healthy expression of the kingdom of God. And if the picture of Jesus walking amongst the lampstands is to be believed, that is exactly what Jesus is after, right? Jesus is working to build a healthy church, a healthy expression of the kingdom of God in every community. And this should encourage us, shouldn't it? Let's be that community because Jesus wants us to be. He is here, present with us, uh, encouraging us and cheering us on to be the community that he has envisioned us to be. To be a community of both grace and love. To be a community that tends to the light of this good news, this gospel, and shines it to everyone we meet. This is what it means to be a church. And Jesus is for the church. He's for the church. And so, so that more and more people can come to see the light and can come to know about this good news and can come to find their hope, their life, hidden in the person of Jesus. 
Now, while this image of Jesus uh, walking amongst the lampstands is meant to be an encouragement to us, and it is very encouraging to realize that Jesus is actually present with us is a very encouraging idea. In the letters that are written to these seven different churches, there is encouragement, but there is also challenge or correction that is being levied against these churches. In Ephesus, uh, Jesus says to them that you have forsaken your first love, right? And he says, Con- consider how far you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. This is what he says to Ephesus. To the church at Pergamum, he, he accuses them of allowing false doctrine to creep in. He said, there, there are those among you who ha- hold to the teachings of Balaam and Balak, which I'm sure those are two great guys. Uh, no. Don't name your kids Balaam or Balak. Um, but uh, and the, in the false worship of Balaam, Balaam and Balak, uh, people have allowed things like uh, sacrifice to idols and sexual immorality to fill into the church. And Jesus says, get that stuff out of here. And Jesus reserves his harshest words of criticism for the church at Laodicea, a church uh, in what it was probably, uh, historians tell us, the most wealthy city in this part of the world at the time. And what he accuses them of doing is taking too much comfort in their financial prosperity. That's what he accuses them of. That's why they're lukewarm. They're lukewarm because they're too comfortable financially. They've taken too much comfort in their, in their wealth. And he tells them, you might be materially rich, but you are poor in spirit. This is what he says. You see, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is committed to the health of the church. And he is so committed to the health of the church that he is willing to speak words of truth, real truth, in order to help them get to that place. You see, this is, the, this is where we get, and this is what the image of the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is all about in the book of Revelation that we hear multiple times. It is this idea that within uh, that Jesus' words of truth are powerful, that they carry weight, that they do work, as it were. Uh, but <laughs> it's totally okay if your kids yell, guys. This is a family service, uh, and sometimes those kids share our DNA, uh, and that's okay too. All right. Uh, but uh, we can read these harsh words of Jesus. We can read these harsh words of Jesus and we can think that Jesus is just being a really harsh guy. But, uh, but I don't think that's true, actually. Uh, he is speaking truth, yes. And they are hard truths, yes. But faithful and true are the words of a friend, of, are the wounds of a friend, right? If they are done in love. And Jesus loves these churches and he wants them to flourish and to grow. So he has words for them that, that sort of run to the, to the unpleasant spectrum of words. But in the long run, these words that in, in the short term are unpleasant are in the long run meant to bring life. They're meant to bring life to these churches. This is what the scholar, uh, the New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham says uh, about this particular passage. In these, He says, the churches must be exposed to the power of divine truth in the Spirit's words of prophecy. If they are to be the lampstands from which the seven spirits can shine the light of truth into the world. Now, just a quick thing here. You will read in Revelation about the seven spirits. 
or the sevenfold spirit. This doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits. It's, again, just a symbolic way of talking about the Holy Spirit, right? So if you read seven spirits and you're like, what does that mean? It's just a symbolic way of talking about the Holy Spirit. So, but this, this, uh, that phrase, the power of divine truth, is, is, uh, is a powerful phrase, isn't it? It's a powerful line. And when we read about the power of divine truth, it can kind of make us shudder, right? It can make us actually a little nervous. Just a show of hands, who uh, thinks that the word, uh, the, the idea of being exposed to the power of divine truth sounds like a fun Friday night, right? Just me? No. No, it doesn't sound fun to anybody, right? Because we know what's inside of our hearts, don't we? We know that that's going to uncover some things that we are, might not necessarily be particularly big fans of. It is scary. It is scary. And this is why the truth that, that comes out of Jesus' mouth is described as a sword. Because it does have power, and it, and it, and it is a little scary at times. But Jesus, but it's all motivated by love. Jesus loves the churches enough to want to change them. It was G.K. Chesterton that said, you have to love something enough to want to see it changed. And, and Jesus knows that if these churches are going to be true representatives of him in the world, uh, they have to hear, at times, difficult words, don't they? You know, one of the th- I think one of the things that we're lacking in our time is the ability to both speak and receive words of correction in love. We're not very good at that, are we? We're good at shaming people, right? We can, we can cast shame and dispersion on people all day. We're good at posting things about other people. Uh, but restorative correction, words of correction and challenge and truth that are meant to restore someone that are meant to love somebody, we're not great at, are we? We don't want to speak hard truths in love, and, and we don't want to receive hard truths in love, do we? And this is, this is exactly why this phrase comes up almost in every, uh, every bit one of these short letters that are written to the seven churches. You'll read this phrase, those who have ears, let them hear. It's the way, it's, it's like, you want me to translate it? It's like saying, if you can handle this, please do, <laughs> right? We must be brave enough and full of enough faith to hear correction and take it to heart. And we must be brave enough and full of enough faith and full of enough love to speak words of correction at other times. That is part of what it means to be a healthy human being, both being able to share words of correction in love and being able to receive them in the same way. And this is really hard for individuals, let alone for churches, for, for whole organizations. But this is what Jesus is asking these churches to do, isn't it? Jesus is asking these churches to hear the words, the true words that he is speaking to them, to take these things to heart, and to make a shift or a change. He brings, the, he brings the words of correction, but notice that it's not only correction that he brings. He's, he's also speaking words trying to encourage the churches towards something better, right? He's bringing words of both correction and encouragement. 
And really what Jesus is doing as he, do, as he, uh, as he brings both words of correction and encouragement is he's calling out to these churches about dangers that they are facing, hoping that they will turn from these dangers. Now, we don't have time to go through every single letter. There's actually some really good sermon series out there and some really good resources out there about, uh, about each individual letter to each individual church. It's, it's some really good stuff. But just to give us uh, a short kind of um, picture of what we're talking about, if you put, uh, I have a slide up here, there it is, of this individual dangers that Jesus points out to each individual church in these seven letters. So, uh, in Ephesus, he says the danger is of losing passion for Christ and lack of mutual love for one another. To, uh, to Smyrna, he, sa- he says the danger is fear of suffering and also uh, consumerism. To Pergamum, the danger is doctoral compromise and accommodating false witnesses. In Thyatira, the danger is tolerance of immorality. In Sardis, the danger is apathy. In Philadelphia, the danger is fear. And in Laodicea, as we already touched on a little bit, the danger is misguided prosperity. Rich in things, poor in soul. You know, all of these dangers that Christ warns the church about are dangers for the church in our time as well, aren't they? You know, it's probably no coincidence that it was exactly seven churches that were selected here. Uh, seven is a number that has a, has a way of communicating completeness. So it might have been a way that the writer was communicating that these, uh, these words are specifically for these seven individual churches, but they are for all the churches in one way of speaking. I think, particularly in our time, if, I, if you were gonna, to ask me, what one of these uh, dangers do you think uh, we are most susceptible to? And I mentioned it a little bit before, but I, I do think we're most susceptible to this, to the danger that is, uh, that threatens Laodicea, the church at Laodicea. And that's too bad because that's the church that, uh, that Jesus reserves his harshest words for. But if you're, but if you ask me, what's the greatest struggle of the church in the West? I'm not saying us in particular, but the, just generally speaking, the church in the Western world, I would say it is this struggle with prosperity, right? It is this, it is, and it is this sense uh, that economic prosperity equals the blessing of God, right? We believe that to a certain extent. Anytime we get a windfall, it's a blessing, right? <laughs> if if uh, Ashley and I got $11 back from our car insurance uh, because, you know, because people aren't driving as much and there's not, I was like, $11? This is amazing. What a blessing from God. I could buy two cheeseburgers for my kid at McDonald's with this $11. But uh, we, we tend to think of it as, a, as a, we, we equate economic blessing with, pros, uh, economic, uh, sorry, economic prosperity with blessing. But if you read the rest of these letters, some of the churches that Jesus ascribes to be the most blessed or the most rightly aligned with him are churches that are actively enduring suffering, which is interesting, right? It's almost like the prosperity of Laodicea insulates them from the reality of God in the world and the reality of who God wants them to be. The, in the book of Revelation, faithfulness, again, I'm going to go out on a limb here. In the book of Revelation, faithfulness is more closely associated with persecution than it is, than it is with comfort or prosperity. 
which is fascinating, isn't it? And so we, in the West, in the Western church, in the most prosperous nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth, must be, must be ruthless in our vigilance that our prosperity does not create space for us to grow poor in soul. We have to be. And part of the way we do that is by embracing, and again, this sounds strange, it's counterintuitive, by embracing our own suffering and the suffering of other people. Not that suffering is in and of itself a virtue. We believe that uh, the work of Christ will wipe every tear from every eye and that all suffering will be judged. But there is something that happens when we enter into the suffering of others and live with them in that place, right? Jesus says, whatever you do unto the least of these, you do for me. When we come to this place of learning to suffer with other people and embracing our own suffering, you know what we realize? We realize that we're all begging for bread. We're all begging for bread. Just like we sang earlier in the service, Lord, I need you, how I need you, every hour I need you. We, we come to this realization that no matter how comfortable I might feel in the moment, we are all fully dependent on the love and grace of God. Regardless of the, if you have your house paid off or if you're, you know, you still got college debt, we are all equally in need of the love and grace of God. Financial, uh, economic prosperity does not insulate us from our need for God. And it's clear from this passage that in Laodicea, they were, they were in some sense believing or equating their financial prosperity, their money, their, their economic prowess with the blessing of God. And they were allowing that to insulate them from the person of Jesus. They were allowing it to be like a buffer between themselves and Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? Your money has made you lukewarm, right? Your money... Your, your, your money has made you lukewarm, and if you're not careful, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're not good for anything. You're not good for anything any longer. But when we hear harsh words like that, when we, when we, hear, the, uh, when we hear truth, the, the sword of divine truth, as it were, uh, in the mouth of Jesus like that, we also must be reminded that that truth is always tempered with his actual presence, with the actual physical presence of Jesus. Because even though Jesus uh, levies these harsh truths against the church at Laodicea, where is he? He's still with them. He hasn't withdrawn himself from them. He is still present with them. He is still tending to the, to the lampstand that is Laodicea. He is still actively involved in them becoming everything that he would have them to be so that, they can, so that they can flourish and so that they can communicate the life, love, and good news of Jesus out into the world. Jesus is still fully invested in this relationship, and he is uniquely present with them even in the midst of their sin, even in the midst of their blindness, even in the midst of their unwillingness to do what he says. He is still with them. And this is probably the one takeaway for us today. Jesus has these words of truth for the churches as a direct result of his abiding presence with them. He is not removed from them. 
And this is where I kind of want to land the plane this morning, if you will. Uh, Jesus' leadership in our lives is not primarily about truth or law. That's not where the Bible finds its center. Jesus' leadership in our lives is about his presence with us. It's about his presence with us. Which is honestly a great transition to what we're going to do in a moment here as we receive communion together, isn't it? You see, when Jesus gives communion, uh, or uh, gives the ordinance of communion to his disciples, he is communicating to them this, the fact that he is in some way going to be specially present with them. And in this symbol, again, this symbol, this metaphor of communion, we come together and we gather around the body and blood of Christ in a sense, right? In, in a metaphorical way. And we remember, we remind ourselves of his presence with us. It's like a big arrow pointing to us that Jesus is with you. He's with you. I've said this before from the pulpit, but when I was in seminary, I went through a pretty rough time. I was a little discombobulated, uh, just spiritually and in my mind. And I began going to a church where we, we, we receive community together every week. And though, um, though my, my brain was a, little, uh, was, was a little funky at the time, this practice of receiving communion and being reminded of the, the way in which God was closely present with me week in and week out became this powerful symbol this powerful symbol of Christ's presence with me. And this is exactly what communion is meant to communicate to all of us, that Christ is with us, that he's with us, that he is with you. And though you feel like he might be far away, he is not. He is not far away. You know, Paul, in his letter to the first Corinthians, is really bringing words of corrective truth to the church at Corinth. They were a mess. And in the middle of trying to sort out all of their difficulties, Paul stops dead. And he gives them this ordinance of communion. He gives them this, pra this spiritual practice of communion. And he corrects some of the ways that they were doing it wrong. But, but he gives them this practice of communion as a way of centering them around the risen Christ together as a community of faith. And here's what he says, uh, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. He says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he, broke, and when he uh, had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion together. So if you would take this little cup and do me a favor, peel the top off and take the bread and just hold it in your hand. At Grace Community, we practice an open communion, which means that you don't need to be a member of our church to receive with us. All we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. But uh, we want to receive the elements together here in a moment. And so I'm just going to read uh, this individual passage uh, to together one more time. And as I read it, just know, just know and believe that Christ's active presence is here with us. It's not in, this, not in the elements 
but he's here and he's with us. So, uh, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's receive the cup together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we cannot uh, tell you enough what, what a powerful reality it is that you are present with us. That you are here with us. That you have not left us orphans. You have not left us abandoned. But that you are with us in some special and mysterious way. And we pray this week, as we go from this place, that you would help us to be all that you've created us to be, that you would help us hear the words of truth that you, you, that you are always speaking to us, so that we, would, that we could grow up in maturity to be the people you've created us to be, and so that we could be bearers of the light, the light of your good news, the light of your gospel. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you love us enough to say hard things to us, but that you have never and you will never abandon us. And we pray it all this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Well, thanks for being at church today. It was good to see you all. If you have a gift, uh, you can place it in the box on your way out. Uh, but other than that, go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you soon.